0: Good morning church. I hope you had a wonderful week. I, you might as have heard, um, had a fantastic week, (laughs) and it's only going to get better. Um, I had two goals for the week. The first one was passing the ordination exam, and by the grace of God and with your prayer, I was able to do that. So I really want to thank you and thank God uh, for allowing me to pass the exam. Now, This morning, I get to accomplish my second goal for the week, and this is the goal. There's a song that I want to get off my chest, so I'm going to start singing it. If you know the words, please join me. Like a good neighbor, stay Farm is there. Thank you. Whew, that felt good. Ever since Pastor Peter introduced the new sermon series, The Gospel Neighboring, ever since I saw this Good Neighbor Cafe, that song has been stuck in my head. And it's been three weeks. So for the last three weeks, everywhere I went, the song followed me. Whether I was studying for the ordination exam or I was working out at the gym, the song just kept going in my head. And I'm a, I sing in the shower. Guess what the number one hit was in my shower for the last three weeks? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hopefully, you're beginning to notice the connection here. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The implication here is that State Farm will be there for its customers. Like a good neighbor would. But here's the thing, we've been studying, we've been spending time in gospel, the gospel of Luke to try to understand the, good, the gospel neighboring, right? Not just good neighboring, but the gospel neighboring. So how does the State Farm neighboring compare to the gospel neighboring? Would Jesus say that State Farm is not just a good neighbor, but a good news neighbor? And I have a personal question interest in the matter because I pay stay, Farm every month. So will you turn your Bible out uh, to Luke 14 with me? It's on page 1621 in the Pew Bible. Luke 14 verses 1 through 14. And let's try to listen to what Jesus says about how to do the gospel neighboring. Luke 14 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent, so taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then Jesus asked them, if one of you has a son, Or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, Your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors, if you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Word of the Lord. Before we get back to the whole neighboring thing, Let's briefly revisit what's happened thus far in the Gospel of Luke. At this point in in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to finish his ministry on earth. Soon, he will show his unconditional love in his suffering and dying. And by this point, Luke has made it very clear that Jesus and the Pharisees and the, the experts in the law, they don't see eye to eye. They've had many contentious discussions, and the tension between them is really, really high. One of such discussions was about whether or not it was legal to heal on the Sabbath. Already in Luke 4, 6, and 13, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees and experts in the law saw such healing as clear and sinful acts of disobedience against God. And they began discussing what they might do to Jesus. So when we go to Luke 14:1 and see that a prominent Pharisee has invited Jesus to dine with him after a Sabbath service, we are left wondering if that invitation was made in good faith. And the following clues actually tell us that invitation was a, was a part of this malicious plan to bring Jesus down. First, we're told that Jesus was being carefully watched by the Pharisees and experts in the law, presumably. Second, there was a man suffering from dropsy, and this man would have been considered ceremonially unclean. And pious people like the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they would have never associated with him. They would have never invited him to a banquet like this, unless there was a reason to do that. And one logical explanation might be that the Pharisees and the experts in the law wanted him there or brought him there to force Jesus to perform yet another healing on the Sabbath. So they, they could catch Jesus in error. That seems to be how Jesus was reading the room. Although verse 3 in our English translation only says Jesus asked a more literal translation of that would be something like, in responding, Jesus said. The the question has to be asked, right? What was Jesus responding to? And the answer is that Jesus was responding to the Pharisees' trap. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? We know how Jesus would answer this question. He's already healed three times on the Sabbath. And we also know that the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they don't agree with Jesus in this matter. So when they remained silent, Jesus healed the man and sent him away. After that, he asked a a follow-up question. He said, he asked, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? The answer is obvious, isn't there? Of course. Everyone would save his or her son, or his or her animal. In fact, the Mosaic law, according to Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 22, require that they save the life. So if they're willing to break the Sabbath law to save their children and their animals, why wouldn't they be willing to break the law to save the life of this man? a child of God. The law requires love in action and not just some pious facade. As David Garland points out in his commentary, Jesus here was exposing that the Pharisees and the law experts were motivated more by their self-interest than their obedience to God. And their obedience meant loving God by loving their neighbors. And that's why they're unable to speak. They're unable to respond. The table had completely turned. And now Jesus began to teach. At a first glance, it seems as though Jesus was only talking about how to behave when you're a guest at a party or whom to invite um, when you are hosting a party. But according to Luke... This really wasn't about party etiquettes or a party guest thing. Jesus wasn't writing party for dummies. Luke tells us that it was a parable, that these moral teachings were not some good advice but had a bigger, larger, more significant relevance regarding the good news that Jesus had been preaching ever since his first sermon in that synagogue of Nazareth. Jesus was using this opportunity to encourage people to live according to the gospel rather than according to their self-interest. It's kind of funny. In verse 1, Jesus was being watched. Now in verse 7, Jesus is doing the watching, and he noticed how the Pharisees and law experts all rushed toward the seats of honor by the host. These seats would be like, you know, the VIP seats at a gala or at a wedding reception today. In the honor and shame culture of Jesus, the motive here is clear. They were motivated by their self-interest to bring more honor to themselves. So Jesus told them, don't claim the seats of honor because if a more honorable person comes, then you're going to have to give up your seats. That will be humiliating. they will be Shameful. They'll be embarrassing for you. Instead, take the lowest seat. Take the the corner seat in the back of the room so that the host will ask you to move up. Go to a better seat, a more honorable seat. Jesus said this to illustrate a key gospel principle. It's a gospel principle that we're all familiar with. It's an important one. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In terms of self-interest, we can rephrase that statement and say, whoever, um, all who are self-serving will be humbled, and those who are selfless will be exalted. After saying this, Jesus turned to his host and applied the same gospel principle specifically to neighboring and hospitality, when Jesus says, you know, do not invite friends or family members or, you know, uh, rich neighbors, he's, we shouldn't take this so literally. It's a hyperbole. These are, th- the th- these are the type of people who would repay you by inviting you back to their future banquets and parties. Pastor Eugene Peterson encapsulates this idea in his translation. He says, the next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends, family members, and rich neighbors invite people who won't be able to return the favor. The key idea here is repayment because hospitality in Jesus' day was a social investment, you know? Receiving an invitation meant that the host just confirmed your honor and social status, and in return, the guest was expected to reciprocate and confirm the host's honor and social status by inviting the host back to his future party or banquet. This was known as the friend-making power of the table at the time. And those who could not repay this honor in a similar way were not supposed to be invited. In this context, the prominent Pharisee here, who, who's hosting the party, can be seen as self-serving, as the guests who were rushing toward the seats of honor because the people that he had invited were the type of people who would repay and reciprocate by inviting this Pharisee back to their future banquets. In other words, his guest list was motivated by self-interest. And this self-serving nature of worldly hospitality was Jesus was challenging here. And this is why the gospel neighboring is fundamentally different from the state farm neighboring. Regardless of how it advertises itself, on the eighth of every month, it demands a repayment. Because the the state farm neighboring is transactional. It is self-serving. As long as it its customers pay the fees for their services, they will be there like a good neighbor. But if I ever switch to, say, Geico after looking at their... I mean, watching their one, of, one, of the, one of their commercials, you know? Well, there is. You've seen that commercial too, right? It's pretty catchy. If I ever go to Geico, I highly doubt that State Farm will still be there for me. And I'm not trying to bash State Farm or any other insurance companies. I mean, they're for-profit companies, and making profit is what they do. I'm simply trying to point out that the, uh, what the State Farm jingle assumes. It assumes that neighboring is transactional. It reflects how most people today do not understand neighboring as an opportunity to selflessly serve others. It reflects how most people today see neighboring and hospitality as self-serving social investments based on reciprocal repayments. A few years ago, I was hanging out with friends of mine who were getting married to one another, and they happened to be talking about their wedding guest list. And their list really wasn't entirely based on who these people were or whether or not they invited them to their weddings in the past but they were talking about such things, right? And a few years later, when a guest who was invited and attended the wedding ceremony of my friends, and when, when that person didn't invite my friends to her wedding, my friends got really upset. They were furious. And the reason was they didn't get the expected reciprocal repayment. And one of my friends jokingly said that, you know, there was, <laughs> they said, um, I'm gonna unfollow them on Facebook, see how they feel about it. How do you do your neighboring? It might be hard for us to recall the last time we had to make a large guest list. You might have to go all the way back to 2019 when, you know, COVID wasn't a thing. But let's try this. Whether it was a guest list for your wedding, or guest list for your child's party, or the guest list for your own birthday, a Friendsgiving, or some casual get-together, whatever it was, what kind of things, what kind of factors were you weighing in as you were making that list? And how does that compare to the gospel hospitality that Jesus is preaching in Luke 14? Don't invite the people who would invite you back, he said. Invite the people who cannot repay you, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And the four groups of people Jesus mentions in Luke 14 are significant because they remind us of Jesus' first sermon in that synagogue of Nazareth, announcing that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed. When we consider how Jesus shared the good news, he didn't just talk about the good news, did he? He lived out the good news. The poor, the crippled, the lame, all these people were on the margins of Jesus' society, and they were the people that Jesus came to serve. He didn't just bring the good news, he was the good news. And today, Jesus calls his disciples To serve such marginalized people of their societies, their neighborhoods. He calls us not only to talk about the gospel, he calls us to live out the gospel. He calls us to offer a foretaste, tangible foretaste of that good news. Jesus calls us to the gospel neighboring, to the gospel hospitality. Unlike the common hospitality of the world, the gospel hospitality is not motivated by self-interest. It is not transactional, nor is it self-serving. It is self-giving and selfless because it is motivated by Christ-like humility. The humility that was most vividly displayed on the cross where Jesus Christ served sinners like you and me with his selfless, self-giving sacrifice. The gospel hospitality seeks to imitate how Jesus has served us. And in verse 14, Jesus promises to bless those who live out the gospel neighboring, who live out the gospel hospitality. He says, when we selfless serve the marginalized, even though they might not be able to repay us, we will be repaid somehow? Again, the question has to be asked. Who's repaying us? And the answer, of course, is God. God is repaying us. Yet, there is another lingering question, isn't there? How? How will God repay us? More specifically, with what will God repay us? At least that's where my mind went when I was uh, preparing this sermon? And the simple answer to that question is honor. Remember, this banquet invitation was a social investment, social investment to gain and maintain one's honor and social status. So in this context, what the people would not be able to repay us, but God would, that is honor. Again, but why would God why would God repay us for serving others? The parable of sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 gives us a clue. As Pastor Peter mentioned last week, in that parable, Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. We know that we love God by loving others, loving our neighbors. And the same logic applies to Serving and honoring. Serving the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind is how we serve God. Honoring the marginalized, that simple act of gospel neighboring, gospel hospitality, that is how we serve God. That's how we honor God. So God will repay us for our hospitality gospel hospitality at the resurrection of the righteous. When Jesus comes back, he will exalt us and make us co-heirs who will reign with Christ. This church, this community has been very hospitable to me, the new pastor. So many people have opened their homes. They have fed me, literally. And they just... Welcome me with open arms without expecting anything in return. This community has everything it needs to live out the gospel hospitality. All we need to do now is identify the marginalized in our neighborhoods and invite them to our homes so that they may experience the tangible foretaste of this gospel. So who are the marginalized in your neighborhood? Better yet, who are the marginalized among us? And like a good-news neighbor, will you be there for them? Let's go to God in prayer. God, help us to serve others as we have been served by your Son, Jesus Christ. Whenever we find it difficult to serve those around us, because of our selfishness and sinfulness. Remind us that the way that Jesus served us was self-giving and selfless. And through your Spirit, give us the heart of servitude that reflects the gospel hospitality. And may the acts of our service honor you and glorify you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.